And that title will make sense as we go through the sermon today. I want to start off with a question. When you think about your favorite movies or your favorite books, I want you to think back in your mind to the moment when you were most surprised by a plot twist or by the ending to the book. I don't know what they are for you, but uh, for me, there's two that really stand out. In the book world, the first is the Agatha Christie novel, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. And I was completely duped. I fully had all the wrong people guessed as who did it, and I was so, so wrong. She completely fooled me. The back cover of the novel reads, setting up the traditional rules of mystery only to shatter them, this ingeniously tricky masterpiece startled fans, polarized critics, and stunned the Detection Club, the highly esteemed literary organization that... Miss Christie herself was a member. One of the most famous detective novels ever written, and certainly one of the most controversial, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd was championed by Christian theologian and mystery author Dorothy L. Sayers, who said, Christie fooled you all. It's the reader's business to suspect everyone. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you who did it. That's for you to find out. In the movie world, I think I was most startled by the very first Mission Impossible movie. Tom Cruise was kind of already a big star with Top Gun and other movies, but this movie really cemented his status as a movie star back in 1996. And about a third of the way through the movie, the IMF, the Impossible Mission Force, the director, Kittrich, meets with Ethan Hunt, played by Tom Cruise, and accuses him of being the mole in the organization who sold out his whole team to an arms dealer named Max. So we have two video clips to show you this morning. And uh, so buckle up your seatbelts. We're going to turn down the lights and uh, take a look. Personally, as well as professionally. Yeah. It's a passport uh, visa, usual drill. We'll work the exfiltration through Canada to brief you at Langley. Uh, throw the Prague police a bone or two, you know, toss them a few suspects. You follow me? We've lost enough agents for one night. You mean I've lost enough agents for one night? You seem hell-bent on blaming yourself, Ethan. 
always had another team. What? Of IMF agents at the embassy tonight. I don't quite follow you. Let's see if you can follow me around the room. The drunk Russian's on the embankment at 7, 8 o'clock. The couple waltzing around me at the embassy at 9 and 11. The waiter standing behind Hannah at the top of the stairs. Bow tie, 12 o'clock. The other IMF team. You're worried about me. Why? Well, for a little over two years, we've been spotting serious blowback in IMF operations. We have a penetration. The other day, we decoded a message on the internet from a Czech we know as Max. The arms dealer. That's right. Max, it seems, has two unique gifts, a capacity for anonymity and for corrupting susceptible agents. This time, he'd gotten to someone on the inside. He got himself in a position to buy our knock list. Uh, operation he referred to as Job 314, the job he thought Galitzin was doing tonight. But the list Galitzin stole was a decoy. That's correct. The actual list is secure blindly. Galitzin was a lightning rod. He was one of ours. This whole operation was a mole. family's farm has been in receivership. Now, suddenly, they're flush with over 120 grand in the bank. Your father's illness was supposed to have wiped out of that bank. Dying slowly in America, after all, can be a very expensive proposition. So, when we quietly get out of here, we're not play. I can understand you very upset. Richard, you never seen me very upset. But I can't. Enough is enough. You have bribed, cajoled, and killed, and you have done it using royalties on the inside. You want to shake hands with the devil that's fine with me? I just want to make sure that you Exploding gum and dead fish. It doesn't get any better than that. So at this point in the movie, when we're watching it, at least for me, I knew Ethan Hunt wasn't the bad guy, but we're so confused. Who's behind this? Who's the masterminds behind this? Is it one person? Is it two? Is it a man? Is it a woman? We don't know. And then finally, at the end of the movie, we get to find out. Here's our second clip this morning. Sorry, I'm right. 
Ethan's right behind me. I told you. Ethan's too good at you to kill him. Ethan, she's here. I gave the money. Ethan takes the blame. Sorry to hear you say that, Claire. Ethan. Yes. Ethan, hi, darling. You remember him, don't you? You know about him. Of course. Just exactly when you knew was something of a question. Mind telling me anything? Before or after I showed up in London? Jim and Claire, they turned out to be the bad guys. His fellow agents, who knew? Could have been the best marketing campaign of all time. I don't know if you heard of it in there, but the clue that tipped him off was the Bible, and it was stamped by the Gideons. And he goes, they stamped it, didn't they? Ah, oh, those Gideons. But the Gideons never called me, so I don't know. But it's, it's a surprising twist. It was a great plot twist when the first time I saw it. And the book of Jonah is the one book in the Bible that has a really shocking, surprising ending to it. We're going to read it right now. We're going to pick it up. The last chapter, if you have your print Bible, I encourage you to open that to Jonah chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 5, and we're going to read this surprising ending. Jonah had gone out and provided a leafy plant and made it grow up up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said... It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I am so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people, who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. It's weird. 
That's the end. It just it doesn't seem to resolve. What did Jonah do? What did he decide? Did he go back to Israel? Did he stay in Nineveh? Did he have a change of heart? Was he bitter and angry with God till the end of his days? It's a pretty weird way for the whole thing to end. What is going on? Well, that's what we're going to discover today as we dive into our first point, under the unpredictable plant. Now, Jonah, as we've been hearing in the story, would have gone on his huge 700-mile journey all the way to the city of Nineveh. He would have arrived on the west side. He would have preached through it slowly for three days, stopping at all the different places, and then exits on the east side. He climbs a hill overlooking the city, and he builds himself sort of a crude shelter from whatever he could find around. Now, if you live in the ancient Near East, the main concern for living outdoors is that you don't want to be in the direct hot sun in the middle of the day. You'll get sunstroke, and if you don't get medical help, you'll probably pass away. Now, the Bible actually speaks of God sending a hot, dry wind. And uh, there's something called a Sirocco in that part of the world. And it's this amazingly uh, hot wind that comes. It's almost like standing in front of a hot air dryer. And the sun beats down, and this wind comes. And people that go through it, they actually become delirious. It, it starts to pull all the moisture out of your body. Whatever, Jonah gets himself uh, into this spot, and he is up there. And in Jonah's mind are visions of Sodom and Gomorrah. He was a prophet of God. He would have known the, the first half of the Bible. He would have known uh, the parts in Genesis where God uh, is fed up with Sodom and Gomorrah, gives them a ton of chances, and then ultimately destroys them with fire. And that's what Jonah's looking for. He's got, God, these Ninevites, these Assyrians are these awful, evil people. We have to wipe them out. And he has set up his little shop. He's got a viewpoint. He's got some water. He's got his bag of Doritos. And he is watching the show. He wants to see God destroy them. It's amazing how hard this guy's heart is. All that fear and prejudice runs so deep in Jonah that he is convinced that even though he has witnessed God show mercy and grace over and over and over again in this story, that God will eventually give in and blast them all to smithereens. So what does God do with this stubborn, racist, angry prophet? Well, God gives him an object lesson. Jonah 4, 6 then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. That word provided that I've underlined there, the Hebrew that stands behind that, uh, we've seen that word before, provided. It was actually in chapter 1, verse 17. Jonah 117 says, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah's in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So in the same way, God has rescued Jonah once when he was drowning. Now he's rescuing him from sunstroke. And then God gives him this thing. It grows up. We're not exactly sure what kind of plant the Bible doesn't specify, but it seems to be something with a thin vine, like a gourd or a, a squash plant that grows up and its leaves come over. 
I don't think they're probably that big. I found that picture of a Brazilian plant called the Ganera manicata. Look at the size of those leaves. That's a guy's head in the middle. But whatever God provided, it went over top of his shelter and provided this cooling. And it must have been big leaves in layers because it really cooled Jonah down. Jonah says, you know, he was so happy about the plant. The next, uh, the text literally actually says, Jonah rejoiced with a great joy at the climbing gourd. But his actions betrayed inconsistency. The gourd suddenly appeared and grew very quickly. Jonah could hardly miss the point that this too was a merciful gift to him from God. But such gifts were fine with him only as long as they were not given to his enemies. Man, that is Jonah's pattern throughout the whole thing. God, be merciful to me. Show me grace. But don't you dare show it to those awful Assyrians. Now, if we are honest... In a slightly different way, this is you and I, isn't it? We're pretty quick to say, God, I fully trust you. Unless, of course, you invite me out of my comfort zone to do something I'm not 100% comfortable with, then I am definitely not doing it, and I'm upset with you, God. But then God in his mercy allows us to experience the blessing of stepping out of our comfort zone to meet our neighbors, serve our community, We actually love it and grow through the process. Have we learned our lesson? Not really, because the next time God calls us to step out of our comfort zone, maybe it's in a dating relationship. Maybe it's it's finding the love of our life for a marriage relationship. Maybe it's honoring God with our time, with our talents, with with our treasures. And we say, no, God, you know what? I am not happy with this. This is too much. You're asking too much of me. I am definitely not doing it. There's a little bit of Jonah under the unpredictable plant in every single one of us. Well, the next day, the lesson continues. Just like God provided the giant fish to rescue Jonah, he has provided the big leafy plant to give him shade. Now God provides a worm to chew the vine and kill the plant. Once the plant withers, the sun beats down on Jonah. He feels faint. He feels angry. The text is almost comical. It says, he wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. One thing you got to give Jonah credit for, he's always consistent. He consistently can't get the point that God is God. God is sovereign over giant fish and plants and cities full of people. The heart of God is to call all people everywhere to repentance and faith, to rescue them from destruction. Jonah can accept it for himself, but he cannot seem to change his heart towards the Assyrian people of Nineveh. Jonah wanted to see Nineveh's destruction through to the end on behalf of his people Israel. And yet the circumstances were so hard under the blazing sun, he could not stand them. He still did not comprehend how wrong he was. From his point of view, everything had gone wrong for him. He simply couldn't stand it anymore. And now Jonah is ready for God's question that penetrates to the very root of his anger and prejudice and lack of compassion. We're going to read it in verse 9. But God said to Jonah, 
Is it right for you to be angry about the plan? It is, he said. I am so angry, I wish I were dead. Now, I want to give you two quick definitions this morning for our second point. First one I want to define for you is mercy. The definition of mercy is not getting what you do deserve. In the normal circle of life, the lioness would probably kill the baby Ibeck. Uh, but in this case, the Ibeck's getting grace. She just kind of gently paws him. She looks after him. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace, on the other hand, is getting what you don't deserve. I don't know how the dog got in the horse, but he's getting a ride across the river. It's grace is getting what you don't deserve. And Jonah has experienced both of these things from God's hand, mercy and grace. Jonah was a prophet of God. He was supposed to be God's spokesman and his representative. Almost every stage, he is in full-out rebellion against God. God has every right to punish his rebellious prophet. But he receives mercy from God, sparing his life, giving him a second chance. In short, Jonah gets what he doesn't get, what he does deserve. Jonah also keeps receiving grace throughout this amazing count. He He gets grace when God saves him from drowning with the giant fish, the calming of the storm, provision for a 700 mile journey to Nineveh. The incredible heart change and acceptance by the Ninevite people as he walks through their city. And finally, the plant that God's provide. All of these are pure grace. Jonah got what he didn't deserve. Jonah received the mercy and grace for himself, but he couldn't stand that it was being given to those wicked Assyrians. And then comes God's amazing question that just penetrates to the heart. Do you have a right to be angry? So what is it in your life? Are you mad at God that you've lost someone close to you? You have a right to feel sadness and loss, and if we follow the pattern of David in the Psalms, you can tell God all about it. David didn't hold back. He told God his true emotions. He was angry at God, disappointed with God. God's okay. He can take it. He wants us to be honest. You're allowed to be grief-filled and angry. But then comes the time to flip it around and instead realize that you need appreciation for all of the years that you had together. Are you mad at God? Maybe you're at the other end, that you haven't found the love of your life. Again, it's right and proper to tell God how you feel, but they need to flip it around and concentrate not on what you don't have, but concentrate on all that Christ has given you, being the best Christ follower you can be. That will make you a better spouse when the time comes. It's why God so gently responds to his rebellious prophet Jonah. God would have every right to wipe him out, but instead he impatiently, patiently takes Jonah through a whole variety of circumstances, miracle after miracle, in hopes that Jonah's heart can ultimately be changed and saved. Because make no doubt about it, Jonah is lost. Jonah is actually religiously lost. And being religiously lost is almost the worst kind of being lost that you can be. Think about Jesus in the Gospels. Who did he have his most intense 
encounters with. The religiously lost Pharisees. They had all the outward actions of pleasing God. They were faithful people. But their hearts weren't truly converted. They weren't changed by the love and mercy and grace of God. In fact, these guys were so religiously lost that they went to the extreme of condemning Jesus to death by crucifixion. And you know what? As folks who regularly go to church, we are in danger of also being religiously lost when we end up like Jonah. We're happy that God forgives us personally, shows us mercy and grace, but we have stopped caring about anyone else. The book of Jonah is one tool that God uses to hold up a mirror to ourselves, gets us to look into our hearts. Well, you've heard verses 10 and 11 in the NIV. Now I want to read it to you in the message version. This is what it says. God says, what's this? How is it that you can change your feelings from pleasure to anger overnight about a mere shade tree that you did nothing to get? You neither planted nor watered it. It grew up one night and died the next. And the text keeps going. So why can't I likewise change what I feel about Nineveh from anger to pleasure? This big city of more than 120,000 childlike people who don't yet know right from wrong to say nothing of all those innocent animals. I read that because it explains what that phrase is in the NIV when it says they didn't know their right hand from their left hand. It's not saying that the Assyrians were incredibly stupid people who couldn't pass kindergarten and couldn't figure out their right from their left. Like, shoot, I always get this mixed up. It's not that. It's a shorthand. It's a figure of speech for saying they didn't understand the morality of choices. They didn't understand right from wrong. I love the way Peterson translates this big city of more than 120,000 childlike people who don't yet know right from wrong. God is screaming to Jonah, Jonah, you may hate them, but these people are morally bankrupt. They don't even know what is right and wrong. Shouldn't I have compassion on them? 120,000 men, women, children. Don't you want me to call them to repentance? Would you prefer that I rain down fire on them and wipe them out? Jonah, my beloved, frustrating prophet, I'm calling you to a heart change. At first, when we read the ending, this odd ending that doesn't really seem to end, and and we get this weird part about the animals thrown in. Sounds a bit odd. But when we think about it, God is actually saying to Jonah, even if you don't care about the 120,000 people, Shouldn't you at least care about these innocent animals? Now, I started this sermon talking about Agatha Christie novel and the Mission Impossible movie, both of which have surprising endings. The ending of Jonah seems equally strange to us at first, but now we're beginning to see that it's a stroke of genius. The Holy Spirit of God directed the writer to leave it unanswered. Did Jonah have a heart change? Did he stay and teach and guide the Assyrian people? Or did he go back and attempt a second journey to Tarshish? Did he get truly converted or did he stay religiously lost? 
We don't know what happened. And in our pondering of Jonah's fate, we are turned to our own fate. What will we choose? Will our hearts remain hard to the mercy and grace of God? Will we receive the incredible, mind-blowing kindness of God for ourselves and for others? That's why I entitled the sermon, We Write the Ending. We all have the choice. We can stay inside of our anger, our fear, our prejudice, or we can realize that following the heart of God is a far better way to live. God showed Jonah mercy and grace, and in Jesus Christ, God has shown us incredible mercy and grace. Ocean View Community Church this morning, I'm pleading with myself and all of us, let's make the right choice. And if we do, if we follow God's heart, we just might see the miracle that happened in Nineveh where 120,000 people turned back to God in repentance and faith. We might see that in our communities here in Ladysmith, Shemana, Cedar, Saltaire, just like they did in Nineveh. Amen? Richard, come and pray for us. God the Father who sought us, we have seen in the life of Jonah how you pursued him. He was rebellious, but you continually offered mercy and grace. Father, you do the same for each one of us when we are so far lost from you. We are forever so grateful and of. We pray for Garth Buffy, who has gone to Vernon to care for his parents and possibly help his father into a home or set up some type of intensive home care. Please, we ask, would you give him the wisdom to make sound decisions? This morning, we lift up Holly Gillard, who is now out of urgent care after having complications after her... Um, after having serious complications after her gallbladder surgery. We pray that the treatment to break up the blood clot will be successful. Please give those who are treating her great skill and wisdom to bring her to full recovery. God, we also pray for Les Pangborn Lahu's friend, Hal, who is facing a long recovery in the hospital. We also lift up Hal's wife, Lou, who is really struggling to cope with the mental and emotional toll this serious, serious illness has taken on her. Father, we give you our love wholeheartedly. And we confess that there are times we have loved money or success or power or anything else more than you. We ask for forgiveness. Oh God, please give us the strength to truly love you with our whole heart, our soul, and our mind as you have commanded us in Matthew chapter 22. O God, the Son who bought us, <clears throat> you paid the price, Lord Jesus, so that we could joyfully walk in forgiveness 
and freedom every day with you. We pray for all those connected with our church that struggle with the sin and the chains of various addictions. Break the power of those chains and use us as conduits of your love. We ask for your favor as our refugee relocation team works on the paperwork to get ready for submission to the federal government. We ask for your favor as our team works hard to prepare for the finishing touches, Christmas craft and baking fundraiser. We believe that this project is your will, but none of these efforts will amount to anything without your blessing. And so we look to you for wisdom and guidance in all of our plans. We pray for the Srida family in Turkey as they anxiously await their future. Please provide for their needs, Lord Jesus, and may they, see, may they see the truth of who you are through the love of your people. But most of all, we want to bring glory to your name in all that we do. Lord Jesus, we give you honor by kneeling before you with our desires. It's natural for our desires that other people would like us, other people would think well of us, and that we are successful in all that we do. But we lay all those desires at your feet and more than our personal popularity, reputation, or success. Above all, God, we pray that your name, Jesus, your reputation, your success would be our primary focus. O oh God, the Holy Spirit who taught us, Holy Spirit is you who gives us the power when we feel weak. It is you who gives us the words to say when we have opportunities to answer questions of faith. It is you who gives us the compassion for others in need. So this morning we lift up Jessica Collins, the young woman for our congregation who just experienced the tragic loss of her boyfriend Derek due to a brain aneurysm. It is shocking to lose someone so young. We pray for Jessica as she comes to terms with her grief and overwhelming sorrow. We also pray for Derek's family in Victoria who feel this loss most acutely. Holy Spirit, we give you the care of our souls. In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, amen. <laughs> 